Hi, I'm Brian Fabian Crane and I'm here with Sebastian Couture. On February 12th and 13th, we attended the Inside Bitcoins conference in Berlin. After two months of podcasting together, it was the first time we met in person. We had lots of fun, interviewing many people from the Bitcoin community, attending interesting talks and capturing Bitcoin at this unique moment in its history. This is one of a series of episodes about this conference. In this episode, we bring you feature interviews we did with five people bringing innovation to the Bitcoin space. You'll hear conversations we had with Johan Barbie of 37 Coins, Thomas Bloomer of Bits of Proof, Pamir Gilenby of Hummingbird Ventures, Jaren Lukasevich of Coinsetter, and Hans Henrik Heming of BIPS. They talk to us about the innovative projects they're working on, their impressions on the conference, as well as their outlook on Bitcoin's future. Enjoy. Right, um, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, hi, my name is Johan Barbie, and I'm the founder of 37 Coins. 37 Coins is uh, your global SMS Bitcoin wallet. It makes sending uh, Bitcoin as simple as sending a text. And uh, where you guys at? Um, so Songi and I, uh, we are based in Berlin, we work from here and yeah, that's what we do. And how far are you in your development? So uh, we started this back last year in September. Uh, we came up with the idea at the Hackathon where we developed a very simple SMS-based wallet. And we've driven it and uh, added new concepts and added security and we launched the whole thing at the end of December. And it gave us a really awesome feedback, mostly from the Bitcoin community, where we got more than 1,500 page views overnight. And uh, yeah, since then I receive like, emails every day of people telling me how much they like the idea of the distributed uh, concept and of, of uh, bringing Bitcoin to people that don't have access to internet, that don't have access to the blockchain right now. Um, yeah, bringing Bitcoin into that space. So, so can you tell us a bit more about how it works technically? Yeah. So, 37 coins mirrors uh, Bitcoin in a certain way in that we have a distributed uh, architecture there. Uh, we call it the gateway, and the gateway is an application you put on an Android phone. It can be a really old Android phone. And the phone number of this Android phone then becomes a gateway to create and manage your wallet. So you send a text message to it and it opens a wallet for you. And then you send commands like send amount receiver or balance or price. And you can manage your wallet and you can... And the private keys of the wallet are stored in this gateway? Uh, that's a good question. So. Of course, you cannot uh, store private keys on a non-computational device like a feature phone that only uses SMS, right? We cannot install apps there. Uh, so what we do is we hold Bitcoins on multi-signature addresses, and those addresses are created in cooperation between the gateway and a central security system, which we call the voice pin service. Yeah. Um, so the voice pin service kind of makes sure that this distributed architecture is not malicious because we cannot trust the single parties. They could alter the app or someone, there is a device which is called IMSI Catcher. It intercepts your mobile's uh, connection to the next uh, provider's, uh, how do you say, like station and it can rewrite all the data. 
So to make sure that this doesn't happen to the gateways, um, we have a, a second factor of uh, verification, and that's a, a system that gives you a call, reads the transaction to you, and then asks your voice pin, which is the thing you need to remember. So what's how do, how do you um, like how does this actually work when you want to make a payment? Since it's using SMS and there may not be a camera yeah. the device, how how does it work? Like, yeah, so you're scanning QR code. You have to manually enter the address. Yeah, so uh, it's a real pain to put in a long address into a <laughs> feature phone, right? So um, especially with T9 or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, so I came up with a simple system to send bitcoins to uh, phone numbers and email addresses. And that's based on existing RFC from the internet, which is called uh, Webfinger. And it allows us to read information from an email address in a secure fashion. And that's uh, what I use to store email addresses behind human-readable identifiers. And that's what you also can use in your SMS. So you do send, amount, and then either an email address, a phone number, or a Bitcoin address. And the idea is to use this in a scope where there is uh, people usually don't have internet itself or something like that. So people would simply send uh, money between phone numbers. So I, I want to ask again like, about the, the gateways and security. So what's the worst that could happen if a gateway was malicious or they wanted yeah. to steal you? What could they do? Well, they have half of the private keys, right? So they can run away with this uh, one part of the private keys. And then they need the second part, which is on the voice pin system. And the voice pin system is running behind Tor, so it's a hidden anonymous service. And what you would have to do is basically hack this hidden anonymous service, get the second part of the keys, and then you can spend the money of the customers you have. And can the customers get their private keys? Is there a way for them to... Get what do you say? Is, is there a way for the customers to get hold of their private keys? Say they want to have their private keys and take it somewhere uh, else. All right, I see what you mean. So what we have is a functional functionality to restore your wallet on another gateway and then you can get half of the private keys, right? Um, and then you still have the PIN for your voice PIN server, and then you would be able to send away the funds to an address which you control by yourself. So there's no issue whatsoever of getting out of the system, but it's actually not about retrieving the private keys, it's about making a transaction. Yeah. And so um, I suppose this is operating, like, where... where what markets are you targeting with this? Uh, obviously, like as I said, we want to address those people that don't have access to the internet, don't have access to the blockchain. So the six billion other people, like Andreas Antonopoulos likes to say. And how how do you go about? I mean, we saw this morning that apparently a third of Kenyans own a Bitcoin address. Yeah, exactly. So there's some sensibility there as to what Bitcoin is, and you know, people are starting to hear about it in those countries. But how do you how would how will 37 Coin make its product known to those people and how will you uh, build trust there and, you know, yeah and um, about that? yeah of course that's a good question so um, 37 coins is built on the idea of uh, M-Pesa right it's just an international version of it and what I'm very excited about is that those people have such a high affinity for those kind of services. They don't mind like checking it out. If you explain Bitcoin to a European, he says like, "Oh, what is Bitcoin?" If you explain uh, to a guy, uh, to someone from Kenya, "Hey, it's like M-Pesa but international," they're like, "Okay, got it. No more questions." And so, how are we going to spread the message? It's all built in into the gateway concept. 
So when you start a gateway, you have an incentive to do so. You can choose a transaction fee. But also there are other revenue streams in the way that when you get a new customer on your gateway, and might it be through international remittance, uh, a transaction from the internet actually, uh, you get notified about it. Hey, there's someone who just started using the service. He doesn't know how to do it. So you can go out and reach out to him through his phone number and offer him like to explain him the security and to do additional services like fiat transfer. So I hope to build this uh, small world phenomenon out into a, like a big scale where the gateways go ahead and they advertise the number and they bring it to the people. We don't have this um, uh, channel through the internet. We don't have this luxury of kind of like, you know, just broadcasting stuff because what we really look at is like rural African communities or something like that. And we can only access them through the word of mouth. And if we have a system that incentivizes itself, like the gateway, I think that's the way to go. Uh, about uh, liquidity, I think that's the real issue you're addressing, right? So we need to bring Bitcoin into those countries. If they just receive a text message and it's a bloody Bitcoin, they're like, what the hell? Uh, if they cannot convert it into fiat or use it at the next store, then what's the point of this? And I think no startup can solve this by itself. Like, we all have to go there together and exchanges and those services have to go and build the... So you think that's something that will come with time and then your service will be there and we'll be able to leverage that and maybe help a bit as well, but exactly. primarily it will be like exchanges rising, maybe local Bitcoins becoming used more... Yeah, exactly. That's what I think will happen. So there are uh, communities of Bitcoin lovers popping up in like every country, right? Local Bitcoins has gone in like, what is it, one year or a little bit more to like 100, more than 160 countries. And I think if you address those communities and you start from there, then it can grow quickly. So right now we're looking at a country where we can do a pilot, where we can do go to and try to build a local community. Like using the stuff, be internal remittance or just like using the village. And we found Philippines very interesting so far. They have two new Bitcoin exchanges there. They have a huge remittance corridor to the United States. So that might be yeah. something to look at. And they have a lot of mobile payment solutions already there. So they High education as well. Exactly. They speak English. So we don't have to do that much localization of our service. Yeah. It seems to me like... It seems to me the good markets to go after would be the markets for the, the corridors where remittance fees are the highest. Are you targeting specific uh, corridors or are you going after what there's... How do you... Yeah. How are you targeting there? So, as... There, there are very profitable corridors, which are like 25% Western Union it would take. So we come in there with our, like, whatever, it takes like 70 cents to send a transaction on our network. People will love it. But also we have to think about the volume of the corridor. And then there's, for example, the biggest one is Mexico, United States, which is, I think, more than $20 billion a year. But they are pretty efficient already. They are below 5% in terms of how much it takes to send. So we are not exactly there yet. As I mentioned, you cannot start with a remittance right away. You have to have a local acceptance and a local knowledge about how the system works before you can get into international scale. So we are really researching so far, like which market to go to and which corridor to address to. So the Philippines seems interesting. And so I suppose you have plans for expansion and uh, bringing local, local teams to those markets? Yeah, um, I think what we really have is a business business product. So uh, we try to get this app as uh, like how do you say as much as 
of an incentive as possible for people to run the gateway. And then with the gateway concept, everything should be there, right? So we really try to get other people to use it because we don't want to go all those countries by ourselves. But first, we have to test the product with the end customer to make really sure that that's what they want, that it fits in with their local customs and culture. And that's why we look at doing the pilot. So our idea is pilot first and then conquer the world. And yeah. when, when's your pilot phase? What do you say? When is the pilot phase starting? Uh, the pilot we want to start in about one month when we have the multi-signature set up well. And we also uh, have the thing behind Tor, so it's more secure than it is right now. Yeah, I think it's a really concept in business model as well that you try to incentivize this decentralized uh, gateways yeah. and communities to emerge. So, yeah. I think it's a great project. Yeah, Thank you. Very successful. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm Tomasz Brummer, CEO of Bits of Proof. Bits of Proof is a software company uh, developing Bitcoin software. Um, we have our own uh, implementation of the protocol, uh, which is our foundation. On top of this foundation, we built uh, applications like we built a web wallet behind Trezor, if you know that hardware uh, device. Uh, we built a, a Bitcoin exchange, a Bitcoin gold exchange. We have a mer merchant solution uh, that allows you to operate like BitPay. And uh, we're actually announcing today that uh, we merged with a company called Icon Capital in Panama. So we are now a financial services provider. Uh, we, can, we will be very soon launching uh, digital gold. Uh, we will be launching... Uh, uh, on, on the on basis of the colored coin technology, uh, a gold-backed transfer unit called Arrayals. Can you tell us a bit more about how that gold-backed currency would work? Well, we will acquire now um, um, physical gold in large quantities and will issue uh, these tokens uh, that can be then freely transferred over the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, I think this will be the first demonstration that Bitcoin is not only a, a payment network for its own currency, Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is capable of transferring any right or value. In our case, it will be gold bullion. And you, you're using colored coins, not, for example, MasterCoin or any of these other uh, approaches. What, why did you make that choice? Well, um, colored coin is the most simple extension above the network it is actually just a, a redefinition of uh, um, certain transaction outputs so you associate some new meaning to them uh, in contrast to the other protocols uh, it is well funded and uh, very simple okay. um, yeah I had a question unrelated to telecoin and uh, this gold back currency because I want to get back to what you were talking about earlier with uh, the treasure wallet and the software that you're developing for treasure uh, can you tell us a bit more about that and some yeah, of the security yeah. implementations and yeah you know currently um, web wallets are inherently insecure because the web wallets store the keys on the server side now with with treasure you are able to connect with any computer that you do not trust you just put in the treasure 
and you are able to sign your transactions on that secure device without exposing those keys to the computer. And the server that I built is is backing backing a, a website, which is which gives you a, a feeling like in an online banking. So you put in the Tesla device, open this web page, and you see your account. And you can create a transaction, sign it with Trezor, and submit to the network. And you can do it very securely, even in a machine you don't know. And how easy is this? I, I had many conversations while I've been here uh, with people, and uh, the general consensus is that Bitcoin will take off and gain mass adoption once um, the user experience or the, the service design around all these different ways of paying and transferring money will become better and easier and more streamlined yeah. and have you. So um, how technically knowledgeable does one have to be to use one of these devices or is it very simple? I mean, can, can my mother do it? Well, uh, the aim is here to, to uh, create, create a website which is about as simple to use as an online banking. Um, it is just much more secure and cheaper. And so this is mainly ba- mainly oriented towards storing large amounts of Bitcoin. Like you wouldn't necessarily use a treasure. No, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's, it's just. It's, I wouldn't say you require a large amount to do that. It's it's. A, but the point is, this gives you the flexibility to to use your Bitcoin anywhere because you can just walk into an internet cafe, put in your treasure device, and transact securely which you currently cannot do because you have to trust your machine not that there is no virus on it and so on. Um, and is this going to be free, the Red Wallet? I'm sorry, it is? Uh, the Red Wallet is going to be free for Trezor. Yeah, or... well, this, this will be a free service provided by the producer of Trezor. I'm just a technology provider for in, the back, end, in yeah. the back end of it. The reason uh, Trezor is using my service because my service is able to uh, pro, uh, process the BIP32 key generation. So every transaction you do, the change is paid to a new address, which gives enhanced privacy. And my server is able to handle that, which others, like a Satoshi implementation, not yet they're able to do that. Yeah. It's, that's coming, though, in the Satoshi implementation. Yeah, certainly. It will be coming to the Satoshi client, too. No, no question. Um, what do you think, then, in that case, uh, sort of the future of... Um, you know, like all this, all this stuff that we're that, that's coming into the Satoshi client, like multi-key transaction, uh, multi-key uh, signing. Yeah. Uh, Let me give you another example: uh, multiple signatures. The exchange that I just launched yesterday is an exchange between gold and uh, Bitcoin. This exchange. What, what's your exchange It is called Bullion Bitcoin. BullionBitcoin.com. You can visit it. Uh, this exchange is facilitating. Uh, a vault, uh, a secure storage of Bitcoin that uses multiple signatures. So the basically three three individuals have the keys. It is the customer, it is the manager who is managing the exchange, and an administrator who is an independent auditor. And you need two out of three keys to sign a transaction so it happens. So for example, the the withdraw out of the exchange if the customer wants to withdraw money is uh, happening by the the customer does a signature and the administrator does a signature. A fixing is done by the administrator and the manager doing together a signature. So since these these three keys are on three distinct physical locations, one is at the customer, one is at the manager, and one is at the administrator, 
It is the highest security storage of Bitcoin currently implemented. And it's also a segregated storage of Bitcoin. Like every customer has his own own address, which is secured by these three out of two signatures. So a customer can basically real-time audit that his holding is there. Recognize that, that MacGox, the problem we, we just have. You don't know if the Bitcoins are there. In this exchange, you can log in as a customer, click on the link which is pointing you to blockchain info, and you see exactly this is your three out of two key signature gold and your money is exactly there. Do you think this is something that will become a standard practice for all exchanges? It has to be. And it, if, uh, if it is um, also combined with Trezor, it will really give you an unparalleled uh, uh, advantage. And Bits of Proof has both. That's amazing, actually, yes. Yeah, we had three very big announcements in this conference. Yeah. Uh, I want to come back quickly to this uh, the gold-backed uh, currency. I find it's extremely interesting. Will there be some similar capability as a, you know, if I own some colored coins that entitle me to a certain amount of gold to verify that that gold really is there and no one's moved it away, for example, or that it existed in the first place? Well, uh, the, the gold coins we, we issue are backed by physical gold we purchase in the first place. Right, yeah. But... Uh, that does require trust, of course, that uh, you are actually buying the gold, you're not stealing it, you're not, uh, there's well, no it, fraud. It, or... it, it, uh, in this case, it, uh, it needs the same kind of trust than you put in any other gold trader. Right. Yeah. On the other side, it is the first gold trader, which is, again, real-time auditable through the blockchain. Since you can exactly see all the issues we do, how many of tokens we issue, and you can reconcile them with our statements again, audited by uh, in a traditional way okay, yeah. to see that uh, um, the tokens in circulation match with them. I was wondering because there's there's kind of two ways of going about these asset-backed uh, currencies. Um, do you think it would also be possible to take a, a data feed of a gold price and then uh, design uh, a currency that whose value is gold linked, but that doesn't actually isn't backed by gold? No, that's that's a fade. That's actually the idea of Mastercoin, which is entirely flawed. Uh, I, I I used to be an investment banker for 16 years, and I tell you, this kind of hedging approach always blows up. It doesn't work. Either you have the stuff or you don't have the stuff. Okay. There's nothing in between. Okay. <laughs> I think I just saw Ron Gross walk by. Maybe his, his he knows my opinion, but everybody should try to stand up for his opinion. And, and, and I wish, wish him success. Uh, I think what we do is the real stuff. Yeah, no, it's certainly a different quality. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by the possibility of this. I mean, what, what I see as a big problem is just uh, the data feed, like trusting the data feed. But I, I am not sure about the, the other side of having actually being able to correlate it, not having being gained somehow. But, you know, replica replicating an asset is the basis of uh, financial engineering. Yeah. Uh, that's called hedging. And hedging has its own limits. You cannot really uh, manage an asset without any any uh, price limits to 
to stay in line yeah. with with an underlying. Yeah. Uh, there were there are lots of lots of instances in the in the history of finance where these schemes all blew up. So they, they are schemes that work if financial financial uh, world is in is in order if prices move slowly if everything is okay but if there is a disruption all these hedging schemes usually blow up. Um, uh, one more question: yep. When you do the colored coins trading, right? I think one uh, criticism of colored coins is that you you can't do the simplified payment verification, right? Yes. Uh, so. Will there be uh, exchanges, like different exchanges, uh, for these colored coins where they trade them on, and they? Uh, how how will that work? Well, uh, simplified payment verification, as it was designed by Satoshi, is not working with color coins uh, without uh, uh, proper support in the script language, which we don't have at the moment. But there is there is a there is an area in between. Uh, simplified verification and full node uh, by storing the transactions that participate in the transfer and validating these transactions with SPV. You have a state in between the full node and the simplified payment verification. It's still quite a low resource requirement, and this is what we try to achieve with our specification. Okay. Something else you wanna? Oh, thank thank you very much. Oh, thanks very much. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. My name is Pamir Gilenbi. Uh, I, I wear a couple of hats in the Bitcoin world. So uh, firstly, I'm a partner in an early-stage venture capital fund called Hummingbird Ventures. So we do seed and early-stage investments um, in, in different parts across the world. Been doing it for 14 years now. Uh, and about a year ago, I really caught uh, the Bitcoin bug. So we started looking at the space and, uh, and, and, and learning about the space. And we just recently completed our first investment. Uh, so that's uh, one of the hats I wear. The second hat I wear is I'm the organizer of Coin Summit, which is a conference. Uh, the next one will be taking place on March 25th and 26th in San Francisco. And uh, the purpose of Coin Summit is really to get entrepreneurs and investors together to help build the um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency ecosystem. I've done the first uh, event last summer in uh, London. It's called Bitcoin London. Uh, and really building on that, we decided to continue as a series, and we've now called it Coin Summit. Cool. And uh, you're going to do these several times a year? Yeah, we'll, we'll see. You know, we're taking it... Um, this is not something we're doing commercially right now, so um, this has not been set up as a business to make money. It's really been set up because, first of all, I love getting people together. I'm really passionate about that. And um, it's a great way to get to, to know, uh, you know a lot of entrepreneurs and, and investors and, and others and people who deal with regulation and so on in this ecosystem. So that's why I've decided to, to go ahead and do that. Um, so, you know, it, the London one was, was good. The San Francisco one hopefully will go well too. And I'm, I'm certainly hoping we can turn this into a series or at least an annual rendezvous. Yeah. And as a venture capitalist, what... What interests you the most about Bitcoin? So, you know, a lot of things. For me, the, the aha moment with Bitcoin um, happened a little bit late. So a friend of mine called Svein Balfels, who's from Iceland originally but lives in London, contacted me in February 2013 
because he was raising money for a startup and he wanted to build something in, in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And it was really after talking to him that I, uh, I became a convert, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had heard of it before. I'd read Fred Wilson's blog back in 2011. But um, uh, I, I, I frankly hadn't followed up on, on those readings. So, uh, so I came quite late to, to this space. But what I like about Bitcoin um, uh, is, is a number of things. So back in 2007, as, a, as an entrepreneur, and I'm, I'm a, you know, my background is as an entrepreneur. So I set up four different businesses in the last uh, 15 years. But my, 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 one of the things I was really fascinated by around 2007, 2008 was the growth of M-Pesa in Kenya, yeah. which is a, um, a way to, to do transactions on top of the Safaricom mobile network. And it became very clear that uh, M-Pesa was becoming very successful. And I started thinking about building a business maybe on top of M-Pesa, maybe offering financial services or financial products that people like insurance mm-hmm. or investment products even that people could buy through M-Pesa. But the more we looked into it, the more uh, we became somehow disheartened because our conclusion at the time was that M-Pesa was an exception, not something that would generalize to other countries so quickly. Uh, primarily because in Kenya, Safaricom has 70% market share, and the regulator in Kenya is um, is known to be quite lax. Yeah. And we couldn't see something similar to M-Pesa developing rapidly in, say, India, for example, where you have six major network operators all fighting for market share, not ever agreeing on, on, on anything, and a very tough regulator uh, and slow regulator. So we, we concluded that you know trying to build some sort of global business Offering products on top of, of the the mobile banking infrastructure would not necessarily be a very good idea. Yeah. And when I look at the evolution of mobile banking over the last six seven years since I looked at this, I think we were right. Um, so when I f- learned about Bitcoin again through my friend's vein um, a year ago, the aha moment I was referring to earlier was really realizing that Bitcoin is like M-Pesa for the whole world. And by yeah. the way. Not a single regulator can stop this thing. Yeah. They can regulate it, and I think they have to, or we have to live with regulation whether we like it or not, um, because otherwise this thing will not be successful in the long run. But, um, but the good thing here is that the regulators can't stop it, yeah. and that's a critical component, because um, if they could, they might. So, um, so that got me very, very excited, because I realized that here was an opportunity really to get involved in something where, um, uh, you know, something that can change the world. And um, for me, the, you know, I, I'm not that interested in investing in, in products or services that, you know, incrementally make our world better. I'm really interested in things that have the potential to, to very fundamentally change the world. And I think in the Bitcoin ecosystem, there's certainly a lot of opportunity to do that. So, for example, you know, on, the things we're interested in are... Um, I think it's a little bit early for that right now, and we haven't invested in that theme yet, but the theme I'm very interested in is emerging markets and um, you know, enabling unbanked people to carry out yeah. financial transactions. So that, for me, is a, is a major motivation um, you know, in, in, the, in the Bitcoin ecosystem. As a, as a venture investor, as a fund, we've done a lot in emerging markets. So we've invested in Morocco, we've invested in um, uh, the Middle East, we've invested in Turkey, we've invested in... Um, other places as well so we have some experience of, of emerging markets and we like we like them we like the growth we like the change we like the fact that they're oftentimes not getting stuck some of the legacy that we have yeah. in um, in more developed markets 
Um, but for when it comes to Bitcoin, I still think it's a little bit early. Um, so our first investment, uh, which hasn't been announced yet, so I'll, I'll, I won't disclose it quite you know, now, but is in an exchange. Um, and um, uh, you know, we, we, we believe that there is a need for uh, you know an exchange infrastructure to be built across the world. Now, I don't know whether there's going to be you know an exchange in each country or if there are going to be a few global exchanges that are going to pool liquidity. I really don't know how that's going to evolve over time. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. But we certainly see the, the needs for that. Um, generally, what excites me about Bitcoin right now are opportunities to make it easier to use mm-hmm. because Bitcoin remains extremely fiddly and difficult and uh, stressful, you know, so, um, you know, the pain points are, you know, the risk of losing your coins, safety. You know, in 2014, I expect there will be a lot of um, very sophisticated attempts to steal coins yeah. from um, people who don't necessarily secure them sufficiently. So, so those are all themes we're interested in. Basically, anything that solves today's problems. But in the long run, what I'm much more interested in is, um, you know, enabling the world's unbanked with uh, a very solid financial infrastructure. So, are you also looking at, for example, hardware wallets in that context? So, uh, our um, our expertise in hardware is uh, is very very limited. We've always done software or services. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I would have to um, say that I'd, I'd have to, l- to probably learn quite a lot about the hardware industry before going to hardware. I know hardware has become a big thing again for venture capitalists in the last two years. You know, with especially with Kickstarter helping fund a lot of yeah. hardware companies, um, but this is not something we've done yet ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, we had you know opportunities to invest in some of the um, ASIC companies in the Bitcoin space, and we've passed so far simply because we have very limited uh, understanding and experience in the semiconductor space. Yeah. And when you talk about uh, emerging markets, I guess. Uh, one thing everyone you know has, is, has on their mind is remittances. Do you? What are the kind of prime use cases you see for Bitcoin there? You know, if you talk about the kind of near-term future. So, in order for the remittance business to work at scale, you need to be able to convert um, Bitcoin back into fiat in the destination country. Yeah. So you need a local exchange of some shape or form. Um, or you need to make an assumption that all the merchants will be happy to accept Bitcoin at some point yeah. in the future. So, which will take a while. Which will take a while, exactly. So I think it's going to be a mixture of both. And yeah. so I, that's why I think, you know, if you want to play remittances right now, don't play remittance, play the exchange business. Yeah. Because you need that infrastructure. Going, going back to my earlier point, without that core infrastructure, you have nothing. So... Um, um, I think as a corollary, you need something like Coinbase in each country, which is kind of a, you know, a very easy to use, um, you know, integrated into the banking system, system that lets you, you know, buy or sell coins in a very simple way. Not necessarily the best price, but something that just works. Yeah. And when you look at, I guess you look at a lot of Bitcoin startups. Kind of, at what stage do you see a lot of them? Are they very early on, or do you also have uh, more mature companies? So for us, we're a seed and early stage fund, and um, it's much harder for us to play in the more mature companies. Now, what's fascinating about the Bitcoin space is that some companies have never needed any kind of early stage funding because either the founders were Bitcoin millionaires yeah. and they decided to plow some of their um, uh, you know gains 
into building their companies, or um, or some companies just got funded through pre-orders, like the ASIC companies. Yeah. Uh, so it's a fascinating space in that in that sense, where I think the role of a of an early stage investor may have to be redefined somehow. Somehow. Um, uh, and I have you know more thoughts on that that you know I'd like to share you know um, maybe later in this interview. But so for us, we're, we're really trying to focus on seed and early stage opportunities, um, where we can maybe also add more than money, and we can help companies with their go-to-market approaches. Um, there's a lot of discussion, you know, and uh, work at the moment in these protocols like Mastercoin, Ethereum. Uh, yeah. Is that something you? I'm sure it's something you're interested in, but it's yeah. also something you look at uh, with your company. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fascinating space, and um, uh, so I, you know, I know the founders of Ethereum, you know, fairly well. Uh, I think they're great guys. I know the Mastercoin team quite well too. Also, think they're great guys. I'm also following Counterparty. I think uh, their execution has been quite impressive. Yeah. Um, and looking at a whole bunch of others. So there's Next as well, as you know, yeah. and, and others. And, and so it's a fascinating space. Um, so a couple of thoughts there. One is that um, as, a, as an early stage investor, you could also argue that what you'd want to do there is instead of investing in actual centralized companies, which is the old model, yeah. you may want to consider taking stakes um, in, the in the currencies themselves. Um, so this is something I'm actually actively discussing with my partners. Yeah. Our current fund charter does not allow us to do that in, yeah. the, in the existing fund. But the new fund, so we're raising a new fund right now yeah. to invest in Bitcoin opportunities. It's going to be our fifth fund. Uh, I, I hope and expect that it will... Specifically for Bitcoin. That's right. Only for Bitcoin. Yeah. And uh, this is something I hope will have closed by September or so. So, yeah. you know, raising funds takes some time usually. I mean, at least for us it does. Maybe for others it's yeah. a matter of weeks. For us it takes a bit longer. But... Um, uh, I'd like to carve out the possibility in a new fund to do exactly that. Yeah, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. And it seems it's something, because Bitcoin works a bit like an ETF, no, on yes. the Bitcoin ecosystem. Yes. So in a sense, it makes a, lot of, it makes a lot of sense to invest in that. But then if you think of the fee structure of a VC, from a limited partner perspective, it's like, why would you pay at, you know, 20% of a performance sure. thing if they're buying the currency which you could really do yourself. Absolutely. I think, I think that um, uh, the, the fee structure of a traditional hedge fund or a VC fund doesn't really make sense if all you're going to be doing is just buying some coins and going long and yeah. not touching them. Um, in that case, the more appropriate fee structure is probably just a, a yearly management fee um, yeah. in exchange for which you trust a, a set manager to secure your coins. Yeah. and allow you to withdraw whenever you want, effectively. And typically what asset managers do there is they have a withdrawal fee as well of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the way the Bitcoin Investment Trust works. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think you might find some hybrid situations where, and that, that wouldn't be us because that's not really our expertise, but you might find some hybrid, hybrid situations where some hedge fund managers may um, actively trade in and out of altcoins yeah. uh, through various arbitrage strategies. And may also play some of the, the decentralized autonomous applications by buying into those coins as well. Yeah. And there, I think you could justify the traditional hedge fund fee structure because that's a much more as active asset management strategy. Yeah, I think that's interesting because if you think of, like, let's say something like Ethereum, and if you bought into Ethereum, but then you could do a sim similar thing like MEC, which would be supporting the team. And uh, so then you have this weird 
hybrid between a traditional VC thing and this new exactly. currency stake. Absolutely. And one of the things I should say also, with the new fund, we also want to have the ability to invest in coins and companies. Okay, yeah. So we'll definitely have that built into the new fund. So you'll be accepting Bitcoin deposits to the fund? We'll probably be doing that as well. The question is whether we will, we compute the ROI on the fund in, in fiat or in Bitcoin. Yeah. My preference is to do this in fiat because I think um, you're setting up you're setting yourself up against a pretty steep mountain to climb yeah. <laughs> if you're um, trying to generate uh, BTC returns. Yeah. I think we've seen that with um, you know Eric Forhees's um, venture uh, yeah. Satoshi Dice. Yeah. Uh, where you know in fiat terms the returns were fantastic. Yeah. But in BTC terms they were okay. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll see that again and again in this ecosystem. And I generally think you know. W- you know, when we're talking to investors who are um, uh, looking at investing in our fund, our advice to them is to also put some money in, in, in the coins themselves directly yeah. or through one of the vehicles that are out there. Um, I think the right asset allocation strategy is to put, you know, a chunk in the coins and maybe another chunk in the ecosystem and see which one plays out the best. So there's also this tendency you know in, in bitcoin and in the kind of things that are built now to do decentralized so i'm really curious if for example something like exchanges could be decentralized in the future and whether the bitcoin protocol and this kind of movement towards decentralization actually is kind of a conflict is in conflict with building large scale companies that have uh, you know proprietary uh, a position, you know, like let's say something like Dropbox or yeah, sure. I mean, look, I love decentralization. Like I'm sure you know a lot. You know, a lot of us in the Bitcoin community love decentralization, and um, and I think whatever you can decentralize, you should decentralize. Yeah, you know, for obvious reasons. So um, uh, the exchange business, you can decentralize if you do something like localbitcoins.com. Yeah, which is also you could argue decentralized, but there's still a centralized server that. Yeah. lists, you know, the buyers and sellers and so on. So it's only decentralized up to a point. Um, but, you know, it, so my view of the future is that there's going to be room for decentralized applications and there's going to be room for centralized yeah. as well. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you. Can you uh, introduce yourself briefly and tell us about you? Yeah, I'm uh, Jaron Lukasevich, the CEO and founder of Coinsetter. Uh, I... Uh, uh, I'm based in New York City, and we have a uh, low-latency, high-performance Bitcoin exchange targeted towards Wall Street and uh, active uh, Bitcoin traders. So when is it going to go live? Uh, we're already live. We're in a, a growing public beta right now. Um, and we've you know seen actually quite a bit of growth in, in our volume over the last uh, four weeks since we ag- uh, integrated Bitstamp into our order book. Um, so, you know, it's been very exciting. Uh, I'm really happy with where the product's at. And, you know, now we're really, uh, you know, taking a lot, continue to take user feedback, uh, make the platform better. And we're also in the final stages of building a fixed API, which turns us into a plug-and-play option for many traders and Wall Street institutions. And, uh you exclusively accept accredited investors or it's institutional traders? Uh, right now we're open to everyone. everyone. Um, it's hard to say what regulation may do to us, but uh, you know our goal is to be open to as many people as possible. Um, and right now we accept uh, all users who want to join. And what kind of requirements, how long does it take if a normal person wants to 
be able to trade on your platform? Uh, we're pretty quick. Uh, so, you know, the average person uh, can sign up for an account, uh, you know, as soon as we send them a beta code uh, and they submit user kind of like uh, know your customer documents, yeah. uh, you know, we will usually approve those same day and, uh, um, and you know, get them, you know, trading as quickly as possible. If they make a Bitcoin deposit, you know, you can be trading the same day. Um, you guys are also working on derivatives, no shorting, and uh, how far is that, and what are exactly your plans with that? Yeah, we, uh, we, we haven't said too much publicly about it, um, and I definitely don't want to over-promise, but yeah. we, we do have uh, exciting things going on behind the scenes. Uh, that would turn us into a, a regulated uh, entity that is licensed to uh, offer an options and futures market in the Bitcoin space. Um, I think it's super important. A it's huge a demand for that. Huge demand. Everyone's talking about it right now. Um, I think, you know, if we can do it, I'll be really excited. Um, a few people are talking about creating uh, futures markets and derivatives markets for Bitcoin. And a lot of them are maybe focused on the technology behind it. But what, what they don't realize is how difficult it is to get licensing for this. And so while you know a lot of people, I think, are maybe naively excited about uh, creating this market, you know, uh, we're taking what we've learned over the past year in the space and really talking to regulators, ramping up on, on our knowledge of regulation and, uh, and applying that to, to this potential market that we can create. And so you spoke about regulation. Um, so I suppose you're regulated in all, registered in all 50 states uh, in the U.S. or is that an ongoing process? It's uh, almost a process that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of an ongoing question for us. Uh, we're working really hard on a couple of things. One, uh, we're in talks on potential partnerships right now that... Uh, uh, give us the licensing we need to be uh, uh, have the appropriate licensure licensure in all 50 states. Uh, so I think a lot of these would include some sort of exemption from money transmitter licensing, and we would report to a federal agency. At the same time, uh, you know, if none of those uh, relationships pan out, uh, we're going to be going after 50 state licensing. Uh, we're based in New York, so I would say that um, you know we it's taken a long time to really find attorneys that we want to work with and that we trust. Um, now I think we're starting to get to that point and finding people who we may want to help us go get licensing in New York State at the very least. And what about international for the time being? Is that international? International is uh, is a much easier place to operate in as a Bitcoin company. So we you know currently have a number of users uh, who are located outside of the U.S. Um, you know they have a, a, a wider array, array of features that they can access on our platform. Um, and, uh, you know, I, at the same time, uh, you know, I think we're definitely a U.S.-based company. Uh, a lot of people who would be interested in us are, are based in the U.S. Um, uh, you know, a lot of our signups, the majority of our signups are, are people based in the U.S. And I think we do a very good job of communicating to that market uh, because it's one we, the one we understand best. So uh, how are these bit license on New York? hearings or upcoming regulations affecting you? What are, what are your expectations about that? Well, I, I think uh, a, lot, a lot of people are asking themselves this right now. Um, it's very hard to say what a bit license will be. Um, 
you know, we're, uh, I think, going to be very proactive in trying to figure that out with them. Uh, but, uh, but you know, I mean, it, it's tough because it, it's more uncertainty in the space, you know. Do we need a bit license? Can we just go file for a money transmitter license? You need both. Uh, do, yeah, we probably won't need both. I pray, pray to God. But, uh, you know, it... Uh, uh, it, that that uncertainty uh, tells you that uh, it it might even be longer to operate in your home jurisdiction than it normally would take, just yeah. because uh, you don't know if the license you would file for you don't know what license to file for. Period. So uh, that that definitely adds a layer of complication. Uh, most states haven't even come as far as New York State, so they've been less transparent and they haven't been proactive and you know not. They're not giving licenses, and they haven't uh, really spoken about maybe the potential that traditional money transmitter licenses uh, don't fit the Bitcoin space, don't fit Bitcoin companies. And and adding to that, saying Bitcoin, that's a very broad term. So there are a number of players in the space that all have very different business models and, and uh, regulatory uh, uh, likely outcomes. So, like, just to, to call something a bit license is, is very vague because, uh, you know, like, we don't expect to have the same regulation as payment processors or as miners or, uh, or companies who are purely dealing in, in crypto. Um, so, uh, and, and especially companies that aren't, are, can completely remove the the necessity for a trusted third party. You know, companies become regulated, generally speaking, because they handle customer funds in some fashion. And, uh, you know, I think part of this whole revolution in the Bitcoin space and the digital currency space is the removal of trusted third parties. Anytime you're dealing with fiat, that's impossible. But, uh, you know, as, as, as you start to see new technologies come out that, you know, have exchanges that are, are you know, not controlled by any one person, um, that that's also going to change the need for licensing. Uh, and it, there will be a learning process for regulators to understand that. Do you think that's going to be a realistic possibility in the next few years that you'll see a kind of exchange that's decentralized, maybe uses some kind of decentralized escrow system so it can completely circumvent regulations? I, I think it's only possible in the crypto world. So yeah. one, once money's in crypto, you can definitely create those systems. Um, it, when you're dealing in fiat, fiat it, it sits in bank accounts so and most of it's digital too but it's digital and sits in bank accounts and bank accounts are controlled by the government uh, who regulates companies that uh, have bank accounts that include customer funds so I don't think you can ever change that um, unless the US dollar becomes some sort of cryptocurrency uh, but you know I I, uh, I don't necessarily see that as happening. Yeah, no, I don't know if that's a very uh, likely new term. But 2014 prediction, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll make that one. I'll make that prediction. Um, do you have anything else you want to um, talk about? Maybe what's... What, apart from regulation, which I guess is your biggest challenge, what else is sort of... You know, what are the biggest hurdles you're facing going forward? Um, well, I would just say that uh, one of the big things I've learned over the past year is uh, not to limit our product. So, uh, you know, regulatory uh, potential regulation 
gives you cause to have concern uh, in, in the product you offer customers. You want to be sensitive of uh, consumer protection laws. You want to be sensitive to uh, um, money transmitter laws. And, uh, and that often causes you to create a watered-down version of Bitcoin. Um, and, and the thing I've, I've really learned is uh, to, not, to, to fight those battles and not dilute Bitcoin itself. So um, the thing that I've, I've been very enlightened and excited to see recently is that I think regulators are, are also in agreement on that, that the technology needs to remain pure and companies will will have certain responsibilities in that, but a Bitcoin exchange or a Bitcoin payment processor doesn't necessarily need to fit the same uh, regulations, especially in regards to chargebacks, reversals of funds, um, as you know, fiat money transmitters and other other companies. So uh, I think the regulators uh, see benefit to what Bitcoin has to offer. Uh, certainly, in a practical level, you can never build a Bitcoin company uh, if if reversals are forced upon you Um, and and so uh, uh, it's been surprising to me but very nice to see that regulators are coming on board with that message thanks so much yeah thanks my name is Hanton Heming and uh, I'm the CEO of BIPS uh, BIPS is a payment processor that uh, makes it uh, possible for merchants to receive uh, bitcoins as payment cool could you tell us about some of your solutions uh, for merchants different solutions you offer yeah, we have a, a, a totally, a, you know, a whole array of plugins for the most well-known uh, eShop solutions uh, that uh, is known out there. That could be uh, PrestaShop, uh, uh, Magento, uh, Shopify, those type of uh, uh, solutions. And what about for brick-and-mortar um, merchants or small merchants? Uh, we do also have a, a solution for you know fiscal jobs uh, where we have uh, done uh, you know um, a solution where it's possible for for them to just uh, uh, use their uh, point of sale uh, whatever uh, tool they have uh, already or we can implement uh, our solution on a smartphone for them or a, a iPad or something like that. That, those are solutions that exist today, or that you're... they they exist, and uh, we uh, we implement uh, a few of them uh, every week, in fact, uh, and uh, we do a lot of buzz around that, of course, because uh, the crowd loves that. Uh, you know, all of a sudden they can buy a beer or a hot dog or whatever uh, with the, the bitcoins. Cool. So you gave a talk today. Uh, you were part of a, a talk with uh, Eric Benz from ZipZap. Could you just give us a little summary of? Uh... Yeah, well, the, the, the topic uh, was about uh, how the future uh, can be shaped by Bitcoin. And, and uh, my major take from that uh, was that uh, right now we uh, only dig into Bitcoin as a currency or a virtual payment method, uh, and that's, that is okay. But I think, uh, you know, there are uh, other possibilities within uh, the development of Bitcoin uh, as a protocol. Uh, there's a layer, or you could put uh, additional applications on top of, uh, of the protocol, which I think is uh, pretty interesting, and uh, which will, uh, you know, maybe not disrupt, but it will force innovation uh, into industries that is well-known today as, you know, banks or other financial institutions. Can you tell us a bit more about some of those Implementations like what are some of the things that can be developed on top of it? I'm very keen on, uh, for instance, uh, how you can deal with uh, contracts. Uh, the whole contract area uh, where you can use the blockchain as a kind of confirmation of those con- uh, contracts, uh, I find uh, pretty interesting. Um, 
I come uh, as, a, as I chaired the e-commerce foundation uh, in Denmark for almost 12 years. And uh, in the e-commerce foundation in Denmark, we, we are trying to build trust within or how you do uh, e-commerce. And when you look uh, into how you deal with the bitcoins, uh, the merchants are pretty assured that uh, they receive their money, but you, you as a, cu- a consumer or customer, you are pretty, you know, lost because when your money has left the wallet, the money is gone, your bitcoins is gone. So uh, in terms of the contract thing, you could uh, build an escrow service, for instance, where uh, as a, uh, you know, a layer on top of the blockchain, where, where you uh, make sure that if you don't trust the merchant, you can uh, have a third trusted party uh, where you can uh, you know, transfer your, your bitcoins uh, to. Is this something BIPs is working on? Or is it, or are there... Are you is Bips entering this space? Uh, for the time being, no, we're no. not. No, it's we're not. It's, it's a personal interest, definitely a personal interest. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, just you know, briefly, what are your impressions on this conference? Uh, I think you know, uh, awesome to uh, meet uh, with the in crowd of uh, Bitcoin, uh, and uh, you, you know. Uh, I, I, I don't have any issues with that because I, I think it's very interesting to, to bond with, with you know people who uh, are uh, like myself. But I would say you know uh, if we uh, need to reach or if we should do something good to, to reach mass adoption, we, sh- uh, we should uh, make sure that we uh, you know cross uh, this internal bubble uh, somehow and uh, be able to talk to uh, you know just the average uh, consumer outside. That's interesting because I mean you develop payment solutions. Yeah. So that's usually the most user-facing uh, aspect of payment and where ultimately people are going to see Bitcoin, I think, right. uh, over the next years through acceptance. I mean, we've seen in, in the U.S., uh, notably Overstock.com and Tiger Direct accepting Bitcoin. Uh, I'm not sure what solution they use. I think they use uh, BitPay. Probably. Anyway. Um, and now we're just waiting for some of the other big merchants to come in. Um, so would you agree that uh, merch accept, merchants accepting Bitcoin payment and making that payment easy and seamless yes. is, is going to be... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think, you know, more to, uh, definitely, definitely. I, I, I see, you know, the major issue that Bitcoin has is about usability. Uh, it's too complex uh, to understand what it's all about. You know, uh, the ordinary consumer, uh, he, he or she don't care about hash rates or mining or, you know... Addresses. Or addresses or anything, right? Uh, in fact, they, they don't understand, you know, uh, a QR code. And if you ask them, okay, now you need to scan your, your QR code, they, they wouldn't know where to find the scanner on their smartphone, right? So there's a lot of usability issues that we need to uh, find workarounds around uh, to make sure that it's easy to, to use Bitcoin. Yeah, you, I mean, you're talking to a user experience designer by day, so I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. And, yeah, and uh, you yeah. know, you need to... We need def- to make... We need to create services. You know, really work on the service design of yes. Bitcoin. Yes. Now, uh, I thought it was interesting this morning during your talk, um, you pulled out a Samsung smartwatch. Yeah. And... <laughs> And said that you know this could be another way for people to use Bitcoin. I thought that this <laughs> kind of make it more complicated because yeah, nobody well, has this watch. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it is an example, and uh, you know, uh, the, the the point that I wanted to make was that we need to uh, look beyond the smartphone. To diversify. Uh, yeah, we need to diversify how we can, you know, uh, you know, just get in contact with, you know, uh, our bitcoins, uh, just as a case. So we we need to work on, uh, you know, uh, this uh, these uh, different. Uh, touch points you could say and so 
what do you think, I mean, where do you think this is going in two, three, five years? Um, what is that user experience going to be like for, for regular consumers that just want to pay with Bitcoin and have a Bitcoin wallet and be able to spend it? Uh, and I'm not talking about holding it or having cold storage. That's another no, no, issue. No. Just you know, having you know, daily cash on in, on them, yeah. so that they can spend in stores and have it be a seamless experience. Uh, I think uh, you know uh, nowadays we have uh, you know we we got used to use our credit cards. Uh, a credit card can be lost, right? Uh, but you know the experience by having your credit card or something alike uh, would be maybe something that we should uh, look into. In, in Denmark, we have uh, a solution from one of the biggest banks, uh, Danske Bank, the Danish bank, uh, who, uh, who's uh, done um, a mobile pay uh, solution, as they call it. And uh, it's uh, very, very nice uh, implemented. Uh, it's so easy to use. Uh, I could just send you uh, whatever uh, value uh, to your mobile phone, and you need to accept it. If you don't have the mobile pay application, you just download it to receive my payment. Very, very seamlessly a uh, way to... Uh, to do payments and uh, the viral effects you know the friend of the friend uh, kind of concept applies here very very much so the network effect is uh, pretty high yeah but I think that wherever this is going there needs to be standards so much like there's an SMS standard or much right. like there's an email standard or uh, it, if if different proprietary private solutions start popping up and everybody's using a different solution I mean, yeah. this is the same problem we've seen with Certain credit cards are, you, know, you, you can't use American Express everywhere. No. You, you can't use chip cards everywhere. I mean, here in Europe. I agree. So I, I think that we really need to have standards that are uh, widely accepted across the board um, for mass adoption to occur. Right, right. And, and uh, I don't know if, uh, where, from where that standard will come from, but uh, I totally agree with you that uh, we, we need that to not uh, you know, just uh, create a login, a system login, but we need to have an open architecture to make sure that, you know, whoever wants to build services are able to do so and share that with the rest of the community. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. It was very interesting. And, uh, I hope uh, you had a good conference. That, uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode about Inside Bitcoin's Berlin. If you liked our coverage of the conference, please consider tipping us at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter. We really enjoyed providing you coverage of this conference. We're excited about the journey we're on with Epicenter Bitcoin. And we're grateful to have you as our listener.